Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. When you think of Wall Street and, and deal-making, uh, it's not, very, it's not very likely that you're going to be thinking at, fir at first about the uh, greatest jam band ever, the Grateful Dead. Uh, my author and my guest on this show, uh, Mark Morgenstern, has written a book called The Soul of the Deal, and uh, he's laid out really an alternative view of dealmaking uh, as a collaborative venture and uh, draws a lot of uh, references from the Grateful Dead and the jams that they did. And you know, and Mark's in a position to know he's known the Grateful Dead for, for decades, uh, helped them form the Rex Foundation, which has done a lot of good for uh, creatives all over, all over the country uh, in the last four decades. And my favorite is Mark is a member of the board of directors of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, while he was doing rock and roll and, and, uh, and some great music, uh, he also took a little detour into deal making, and he's done thousands of deals, both as a lawyer, venture capitalist. Uh, he uh, probably knows more about the inside of deal making than, than almost anybody. And so I was when I saw his book, it's a it's a it's a chapter from my past where I spent a lot of time on Wall Street and venture capital and mergers and acquisitions. And I, I found his book had incredible insights. And uh, even though I thought I knew a lot, I learned a lot more after reading reading Mark's book. So, so Mark, welcome. Thank you so much. <clears throat> it is definitely great to be here. And <clears throat> I couldn't give that introduction to myself. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, who'd you write the book for? Who's who, who should be reading this book? Well, I'll, first, I'll give you the real answer. And then I'll give you the answer you're expecting. So the real answer is I wrote it for my children. Right? I really wanted to make sure that uh, everybody sort of assumes because they're my children, they know all of these things, and they don't know all of these things. You know, yeah. Mark Perlman's children do not know how to play the violin. So part of it is literally for them. My daughter happens to be a VC, by the way, so it's it's even it's even more fitting. <clears throat> but mostly, you know, my whole life I have taught and written and mentored, and it's usually been essentially one on one. You know, I'm helping a CEO of a startup one way or the other. Uh, I do a lot of things that start at the beginning of something, go all the way to the end. And some time back, I just thought, you know, there's a sort of, or, there's a limit to the organic reach that I can have mentoring. And I still have all of these thoughts in my head and knowledge, and I'd like to amortize them over a much larger base. Yeah, well, so, I think you compress decades of deal making into uh, in a terrific and, and concise read with a lot of, uh, a lot of humor and wisdom. Uh, you know, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the deal business on Wall Street and venture capital, private equity, financing companies, um, workouts, buyouts, all that sort of, uh, all that sort of thing. And I think the misconception that people have is they think it's all about the numbers. Yes. And as you know, and that what this book is about, it is not. I mean, I, I tend to think of knowing the numbers as a as a necessary condition. You know, you have to do that in order to be effective in business, but it's not nearly uh, sufficient. Yes, that's that's the mathematical expression. That's exactly right. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. 
And, and sometimes it's a trap anyway, because people actually believe numbers. And I think that's a pretty bad idea. Usually, you know, they, people think of numbers as being objective and they really aren't. I mean, even the old question of, you know, how much is two plus two in base three, it's 10. <laughs> so people like numbers because it's easy for them. They can justify things. They can analyze numbers. People are squishy and messy and you can't, you know, most people are not comfortable analyzing them. They don't have the opportunity to analyze them. And the, the more you get to a company that's sort of founder formed or, you know, early stage, it is a company that is really a person in disguise. You know, Emerson said it's a, a company is basically an institution is merely the length and shadow of a man. And most companies up to maybe 200 or 500 people really reflect the founder, you know, whether they, they know it or not, the founder's presence is there, the founder's approach is there. And then if you sell the business, now the founder isn't there. And that's a very, very, very different business. Now, if it's not clear to people who maybe through this introduction, what you did for years as a, as first as a lawyer, I think then later as a venture capitalist is you help people <clears throat> buy and sell companies, middle market companies. Is that is that accurate? I'd say two things. One is start companies. So I was involved with Office Max from literally before day one. <laughs> uh, the, the, the business plan was written on my kitchen table every Sunday night for six months. So, and then those companies that are formed and are using other people's money eventually have to exit. They got to sell or go public. So my lifetime of deals has been starting companies, growing companies, selling companies are taken in public. So you, in, you involve venture capital along the way, you involve high net worth investors, and you involve a lot of founders who are people I have unbelievable respect for. Well, I, 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 I so much love that world. When I got out of business school, I had a chance to go to work in, the, in New York on a, on a bond trading department, and I think probably would have ended up making a lot of money, but I ended up taking a job in a bank uh, doing middle market uh, lending and lending basically to medium-sized founder-owned uh, uh, entrepreneurial companies. And I think I learned more from those owners than, than I've learned from anybody before or since. Sounds like you had a lot of the same experiences. Yeah. And when you were dealing with those companies, you know, banking was a long time ago. It used to be cash, collateral, and character. Oh yeah, it's on middle market days. We're judged because they, everybody knew that you know if the founder weren't there that day, the business wasn't as good. The numbers weren't the same, and so bankers like you spent a lot of time trying to really understand the integrity of the person you were talking with, their capability, because you had to rely on them. They sometimes they had audited statements, sometimes they didn't, but you were relying on one person, disguised as an institution. Well, the good, the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I remember one of my big clients in the, I was in Chicago in the uh, steel and automobile division. And one of my clients was a major Cadillac dealer in, uh, in Chicago. And he, uh, he had a great business. Cadillac dealership was a, was a cash <laughs> machine back in the seventies, yeah. but he had a little problem. And I was into his, I was in his office one day and we were having, I was trying to figure out why his cash flow wasn't what it should have been. And I was asking him about other things he was interested in. He said, and then he turned 
turned and he to, to the side and he opened a drawer and he says, well, do you want to know where, where my real love is? It's my babies. And I said, your babies? And he reached into his drawer, pulled out this ledger and it was a ledger of all the, uh, all the trotters, all the horses he owned. Oh, great. <laughs> Just what you want to hear is his banker. <laughs> and I'm a young banker. I've got my tie on and my, I'm very earnest. I've got my wingtip shoes and all of a sudden I'm sitting, my, my heart is sinking. I'm thinking, oh my, I have a problem here. Because <laughs> we're taking all the profits from the dealership and putting them into his babies. <laughs> you know the good news out of that? You were in his office talking with him, yeah. listening, and you got that information. Whether you liked the information or not, you got it. You never would have gotten it if you'd send an email that says, dear Cadillac dealer, how come the cash flow doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> well you've got you've got a lot of aphorisms in your book i think you said something like there's a reason we're born with uh, uh one mouth but two ears and that's that's a pretty good ratio i think the ratio is actually a lot higher when it comes to listening and, and talking um do you remember your first deal i mean were you a lawyer were you a venture person what was the first deal you did the first deal i did i wasn't in anything I was living in Australia and working while I was in college. Yeah. And a very odd story, but <clears throat> I had no business being there, but my boss took me along. I, I don't know why. We were looking at a company in Sydney. And so I was looking at the financial statements, which I'd never seen financial statements before. Really? Yeah. When I read financial statements then and now, I always start with the footnotes. Because until I've read the footnotes, I don't know what the numbers mean. So I want context. Anyway, on a, on this on this thing, there was this like a single line entry that said land at cost. I don't know what the number was, pretends a thousand dollars. It's just sort of buried. It was no part of the discussion. Then later on, I said to my boss, you know, why, why is land valued at a thousand dollars? And they said, well, that's what he paid for. It doesn't matter when he bought it. It's still a thousand dollars. So I was really curious to know what the land was. It turned out that the land was a square block in downtown Sydney. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't realize what they owned. It was just $1,000 worth of land. So we made the acquisition. My boss made the acquisition. It was a really good, good, great lesson. good lesson that, yeah, you've got big picture and you've got little picture. And if you keep asking why, 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 yeah. we'll eventually get to some pretty interesting answers. Now, when did the... I mentioned the Jerry Garcia, uh, Grateful Dead, wonderful band. I love them. Still, still enjoy the music. When did you get involved with the Grateful Dead, and how did that weave into uh, your work in the deal business? My college band, uh, I had several college bands, and one of them, my rhythm guitarist, one day said to me, "We're going to a concert tonight." I said, "Great. Who are we seeing?" He said, what do you care? I bought the tickets. I said, great, where are we going? He said, what do you care? I'm driving. I said, okay, when are you going to pick me up? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where we went, except it was a couple hours away from New Haven. And it was the dead, as you might imagine. And they started playing at eight and they finished at one. And my mind was completely blown. I just uh, watched the interactions on the stage and I didn't know the music, right? but I'm just watching the musicians watching each other so intently and the guitar and the rhythm guitar and the bass player all gathering in the middle. And you're sort of thinking, well, they can hear each other. Why do they need to see each other? And then you look and you see, well, look, they're all looking at each other's hands. You know, 
Where are they playing that chord on the fret? Um, what are they trying to do? How can I anticipate it? They wanted more information than just even just listening. They wanted to invoke all five senses. And then the other thing, which I didn't really understand at the time, but I experienced it, was the Deadwood play and clearly a very knowledgeable audience, right? I mean, what year was this? What, when, when was this? 69 or 70. 69, okay. And band would play something, the audience would react, and then you could palpably see the dead reacting to the audience's reaction. And then the audience would react to the dead's reaction to the audience, and so on and so forth. And then we sort of saw the dead over time in many different venues in many different cities, you know, thousand seats to a hundred thousand seats, you realize that um, they took into account whether it's conscious or unconscious, I don't know, but this is a different venue. This is a different audience. This is different acoustics. I'm mm -hmm. in a better mood. I'm in a worse mood. So the fact that I played something five nights ago, one way doesn't mean I'm going to play it that way tonight. I've got different, I think of the audience as your counterparty. I've got a different counterparty. So I can't walk in assuming I'm going to play the song, same song, and it's going to make them happy. I've got to figure out this counterparty. And that was completely consistent with my earliest training in selling encyclopedias door to door. Because people who are bad at selling, I, I was very good at selling encyclopedias. So don't believe anything I'm telling you. But wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I have to, I think I have to be careful here. You were good at selling encyclopedias? I was. Okay, that, that, was, that says was, everything. That's, I, was, that's... I was 16 years old. I wasn't old enough to know what I was doing. I, there are a lot of complicated things about that sentence. <laughs> but the parts that aren't complicated are that people who are bad at it, well, first of all, they were afraid of hearing no, right? They didn't, they didn't like anyone to say no. They didn't like to be rejected. Well, if you're going to be in the deal world, being rejected is something you just have to get used to. Right? No is the, is the beginning of a conversation. The more important part was that if you're looking at customer A, B, and C, side-by-side -side houses, people who are bad just sort of walked in and made their pitch. The pitch never varied. They never thought about who the counterparty is. They never tried to figure out what does the counterparty want. If you're good at selling encyclopedias, a big chunk of the good was when you walked in the house, you talked to the people. You learned about their background. You looked around and saw there was a Yankees pennant on the wall. You looked around and heard that they were listening to Beethoven. You tried to learn who the people were and then figure out what does an encyclopedia mean to them? Because the physical dimensions, you can, I can't change them. I mean, it's 32 volumes and it's whatever it is, three feet high. But to some people, an encyclopedia was the education they never got. To some people, it was, well, my neighbor has one and I want to feel equal. You know, to some people, it's literally a window on the world. I don't know what the encyclopedia is. So whether you're doing a deal or you're making a sale, the first thing you do is figure out who is the counterparty, what do they want, and after you figure out what they want, then you sell it to them. You can't change the facts. You can't lie. But you can frame and present things enormously different, differently. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about this is that, you know, I read, I read the book and, you know, you, you, you did instinctively at 16 what I took me a long time to learn once I went into finance, first as a commercial banker, then as an investment banker, then private equity. And that meeting I had with my, my car dealer was probably one of the 
first instances, and you point out you don't do it via email or text. You go to the office. You look at you're looking around the office. You're looking at what the, the paintings, pictures they have on the wall, what's on the desk, how they're dressed, that sort of thing. And I guess I wasn't completely surprised that he reached in the drawer and found his ledger of his of his ponies because he had a lot of pictures all of all over the office oh. and began to begin to read that that situation yeah <laughs> so when you uh um you know i guess the uh 1969 you were with the dead uh 69 i was at woodstock lucky and, and i was disappointed i was just i think the dead were supposed to go to woodstock and something happened that uh Anyway, yeah. a lot of people happened there. Anyway, you got to see him, and I got to see the other, the country Joe and the fish, the other folks from San Francisco. Phenomenal. So, uh, I, as you can obviously tell, I've, I, I wasn't always a banker. I had a little countercultural experience before I got into this business. But what got you into the, how did you get to know the dead, and how did you end up for helping them form the Rex Foundation? Well, and so then how did you end up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Let's let's back up, and I didn't want to interrupt you and correct that fact. I'm on the Rex Foundation board. It yeah. was formed long before I got involved. Oh, okay. I, mis I misunderstood. Let's clarify that. And um, I don't know about you, but I think of most of life is sort of luck and chance and serendipity. Absolutely. My life is. <laughs> that's how it's worked. So it turned out that a guy that I knew from Cleveland, Ohio, was Bob Weir's the rhythm guitarist, as you know, but your audience may not know. Mm -hmm. He had become Bob Weir's best friend. <laughs> and so he said, well, do you want to come hang out with the band after the concert tonight? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So just complete, you know, pretty, pretty random. Um, it was a lot of fun. So I, have, I have tremendous admiration for them as people, as musicians, um, as thinkers, which people don't usually think about. And if you read what both particularly Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir have said through the years, it's pretty profound. And Robert Hunter, the lyricist, is un really unbelievable. But you have to be listening to them to hear that. And, and people tend to hear what they want to hear and they disregard the rest. That was Paul Simon's comment. Sure. And that's true in deals. That's true in music. By the way, it's true in politics. It's true in everything. You know, when people wonder why, why is this conversation going well? It's because you weren't listening to the other person. You heard a trigger word and you went off on it and you didn't hear one more thing after that. And you never responded and tried to explore. Why did you say that? Why do you believe that? How does that work? I'm puzzled. You just blew off the interaction. If you're doing a deal, you can't do that. Well, you could do it if you want to do it badly, but you can't do it if you want to do it well. Well, how do you think your brain works differently from other deal makers? We, we've touched on it. I mean, it, it seems like this is, to me, what you're saying is axiomatic. This is, this is you've got to do this to make it work. But are are there other styles that that work? I mean, you, you yeah. There, well, let's start with the obvious. There are lots of deal makers who think what you do is run over the other party. Yeah. Right. I'd be you know, caveman, hear me roar, uh, and, <laughs> and strength prevails. Um, <laughs> They don't tend to listen. They tend to tell. They dictate. When they disagree with somebody, they yell. I know just from listening to a couple of your podcasts, when you disagree with somebody, you lower your voice. You, I don't know if you're consciously, but, but I know you do, and you, you slow your cadence because I watched enough to see that. 
And to me, that's what a good deal maker does. You ratchet the tension of the room down. You know, you create some room for people to listen if they want to listen. But someone who yells at you, if you yell back, where's that discussion going to go? So by the way, if you laugh at them or make a joke, you can also bring the temperature down. There's certainly deal makers who think making jokes is, isn't appropriate. I think humor is the staff of life. I mean, it's, <laughs> if I can get people laughing, whether they're laughing at me, they're laughing with me, I don't care. If people are laughing, they tend to like you whether they want to or not. And people like to do business with people they like to do business with. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah, laughing and making people like you is is a way to reduce the friction. And that's what you're trying to do in a deal. Reduce the friction, to the irreducible minimum to see if there really is a deal. What's what's the biggest misconception you people you think people have about uh, the M&A business or the investment investing business? Biggest piece of conventional wisdom that's flat wrong. I think that people who aren't in it actually tend to think of it as soulless, hmm. which is kind of the opposite of how yeah. I think about it. They think is sort of you started with it's the numbers, it's the numbers, it's the numbers, and it's the numbers. The people who are good at any of those things, venture capital, PE, are people who connect with people and who motivate people to want to do well and are great communicators. You can buy somebody's business, but you can't make them perform, right? You can make them want to perform. You can give them economic incentive, but that emotional burst of I'm doing this because I want to do this because I like you and I want to prove you right and I want to make you happy, that's a different level. And that's what every great CEO wants to do, right? You're not going to tell your 10,000 people below you, turn left, turn right, turn blue, turn green. You're going to say, hey, here's where I'm trying to go. Here's how you can help me. Here's how I value you. Here's the contribution. Yeah, well, in my experience, it, it, you, you certainly want to make those people feel like they're working for themselves, not you. Yeah. That they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, it's their business and they've got their ideas and they want to help you make it work. But, you know, you really let them be, be creative, which is uh, a you secret be- I think some bosses sometimes forget. Well, you want to be a collaborative partner. Uh, right. Do you think other, do you think you could, I, I love your book. I think there's so much wisdom in it. Do you think it's something though, that people are going to read if they've got, if they don't already buy your premises, can people be taught to think the way you think about making deals? I'm not sure is the honest answer. Yeah. I hope so is my optimistic answer. You know, I didn't write lots of books, say the seven secrets of or the 10 rules of or stuff like that. And first of all, I don't believe there are secrets. And if you had one, you wouldn't share with a million people. (laughs) Think about that next time you buy an investment advice book. And and they're so good. Why aren't they rich? (laughs) Rules are things that if if in the real world, there was a pop up that said, this is the time when you apply rule number seven, like they do on NCIS. That would be great, but I don't think that's how it works. And all of these, to me, are their principles, their ways of thinking. Even the pretty simple one that if you if you can change somebody's behavior, oh, let me back up. One of the things that I say and believe is you want to learn to listen like a jam band musician, not like a lawyer. And what do I mean by that? Because remember, I was the managing partner of a law firm. I practiced. Yeah, son, you were Son and Shine, right? And before then, I was the managing partner of Con Kleinman for 25 yeah. years. Yeah. 
So I have a lot of respect for lawyers. I work with lawyers all day long. I love them. That said, how are lawyers taught to think really in law school and how are they rewarded over time? They really are taught like litigators. They're listening to what you're saying until they can rebut it, distinguish it, explain why it's not important. It's all the negative parts of listening. How does a jam band musician listen? Oh, what are they doing? Can I build on that? What's the commonality? Oh, I never would have thought of playing a G sharp in this key, but wow, that really worked. I should try it. You're listening to understand and collaborate and make something new right now this minute. So that's pretty. So the bottom line is if I can get somebody to even say, I will pause. And, and uh, when someone finishes, you're going to say, listen, I just want to make sure I heard you right. This is what you said. I want to, here's how I'm guessing you said it, why you said it. Could you just spell it out and make sure that I understood it correctly? Just that level of validation and acknowledgement changes an awful lot of interactions, right? Can somebody become me by reading the book? No, I have enough ego to say no, <clears throat> but can they move in a direction that makes them better at what they do? I absolutely think that. Yeah, well, it's, it's worth it. One of my favorite stories in your book, and there, there were several, one of them was about the two partners, the two founders, that had a business they were selling, and I guess they were going to fetch maybe a half a billion dollars each from the sale. Yeah. And they were going to stay on with the business. And one of the things that they had to uh, convey with the business was a parking space. Yeah. Why don't you tell the rest of that story? That's, 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 that says everything about the, the little things. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for raising that because it's frequently the, when people think it's all about the money, it isn't always all about the money. No. And, and it's no different than a divorce where everybody works out everything except that picture is mine. So there are funny right. emotional components to every deal. In this deal, the two founders had equal ownership. They've been partners for forever. They're great partners. They run unbelievable businesses. They were parting ways and we were involved and um, every, literally everything was resolved except in front of their office building, there was a great parking space, just one of them, however. They both wanted it, they both said it was theirs. Now you may say to yourself, how can you be holding up a billion dollar deal over who has a parking space? That is ridiculous, which I would agree with you objectively, it is. But unfortunately, it's also true. So after we spent a lot of time trying to work it out, we agreed to just bulldoze the parking space. <laughs> now that now there's no asset to fight over, right? That's how we solved the problem. We it was your solution it. that I love so much. <laughs> Let's just get rid of it. <laughs> no. That that's where being comfortable thinking so far out of the box that you can't find it is. You just say, under what circumstances could I make this deal work? And then you actually would probably say to yourself, well, if the parking space didn't exist, we wouldn't have this problem. And then you say, oh, well, maybe the parking space doesn't have to exist. That's really, that's a, that's a methodology for thinking. What, under what circumstances would this get done? You've got a lot of fun aphorisms that you've, you've laced through the book uh, and you've got an interesting appendix. And I'd, I'd recommend everybody buy the book. Why the, let's, let's do a quick plug here. You're, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Mark Morgenstern, author of a terrific book, uh, The Soul of the Deal, 
Um, and it's filled with both war stories and, and, and essential truths about how you uh, succeed in the deal business. And if nothing else, just getting the index with this list of aphorisms is worth, uh, is worth buying. Uh, so, Mark, what's, what's your favorite of that long list of interesting uh, observations? I'll tell you my favorite, but it isn't everybody else's favorite. So I'll start with everybody else's favorite, which is clearly an expectation unarticulated is a disappointment guaranteed. And people like it because it, it it's every part of your life. You know, did the teacher make things clear? Did your parent tell you that you had to take out the garbage? Did your friend make it obvious that they didn't want to go to the movies or did want to go to the movies? You know, people aren't mind readers. You can't make them guess. So if you don't articulate your expectations, you're probably going to be disappointed. That seems to be like universally accepted. My own, which I think is probably a fraction too cryptic for everybody else, is structure unexamined is stricture. And by that, I mean that if you just assume that there's only one way to do a deal, this is the way you have to do it. Here's the structure. If you're not prepared to examine that structure and say, well, could we put the first floor on the second floor? Could we add an annex in the back? Yeah. Know, what could we do to examine this structure? And if you re re reframe the problem, reframe it. And if you don't, then structure, which you do have to know to do anything, becomes stricture. And it's sort of Pablo Picasso had a great line. I mean, many great lines, but uh, one was, you know, first you've got to learn the rules like a pro before you can break them like an artist. So you can't skip the steps where you learn the structure. And by the way, why everybody else thinks the structure is the structure, because that's part of how your counterparty is thinking. You also want to know that structure so well that you're comfortable disassembling it and then reassembling it. Right. Well, one of my favorites was, uh, wait, did we get to your favorite? I, I know we got the one that was conventional. I guess yours is stricture. Yeah. Uh, one of my, I can't quite say it's favorite, but one I thought was entertaining was uh, groveling and pandering <laughs> are underrated virtues. Yes, that, that comes from encyclopedia selling. Okay. <laughs> <Let's go. laughs> so, Am amplify, that's, that's, worth a, that's worth a story or two. <laughs> so I never had any problem saying to somebody, essentially, um, what you did is just so smart whether it was really smart or not. It's gentle flattery. You see somebody, I had a, a friend who, no matter how many times I saw him, the first thing he'd say is, you look so trim and fit, you must have lost 20 pounds. Well, did he believe that for a second? No, he didn't believe that for a second. Did it offend me? How could I get offended? He said I was trim and fit, right? Was that pandering and groveling? Sure. And if you're trying to do that, some people can't do that without either being insincere, in which case it's a disaster, right? If you say it with a twinkle in your eye, it's okay. Um, some people feel demeaned by it, like lots of service providers. I can't pander to this client. I'm the service provider. I am brilliant. Well, you may be, but my dad used to say, you could be the best neurosurgeon in the world, but if you didn't have a brain to surge on, you couldn't be... <laughs> And, and so that concept that as the seller of anything is the, is the deal-making of anything, making the other person feel good about themselves is a pretty useful, pe people like people who make them feel good about themselves, right? So to me, it's just all part of selling and negotiating. One of the things you brought up when you, we talked about your, your 
success as an encyclopedia salesman is that I think most people, I think the, the big block for most people doing anything is fear. Yeah. And you if you don't learn to push through fear, um, you don't accomplish anything, I think. And yeah. your one of your maxims here, aphorisms, is rejection is unpleasant but unlikely to kill you. I think getting through that, getting through a, a, a no and pushing past that and not taking it personal um, is, is an incredible uh, uh, skill. Did you come by that naturally or did that, I mean, did that when you're 16 years old and you're in somebody's living room trying to sell them $2,200 worth of Encyclopedia Britannica's, which uh, was a it, lot of money in those days. It, it, it didn't bother me. It probably should have, but yeah. I'm one of those people that if you ask me if the glass is half full or half empty, mine is just about overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> so it just never bothered me. I, I will say that when I was running a law firm, I said to my partners frequently, the best training for any lawyer or service provider in the world would be to sell anything door to door for a week for two reasons. One is you're going to hear the word no, 99 times out of 100. And eventually you get desensitized to it. Okay, they said no, move on to the next one. The second thing is you only got paid for performance. When I got done at the end of the week and it's time to get paid, nobody cared if I'd walked 15 miles in the rain or 200 yards. What they cared about was how many sales did I make? Now, if I sold an encyclopedia, I got $76.50. If I didn't sell an encyclopedia, I got paid nothing. And so the concept, right? You, you get paid for product, not for process. And that's a very important lesson. A lot of lawyers are uncomfortable asking people for business because they don't want to hear no. They, they think they're a wizard. With due respect, I think most of them are plumbers. They're doing stuff. It's important, but they're not wizards. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've, 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 I think I know all those lawyers. <laughs> I, I know them all. I can give you names, but not not on not on air. Uh, you, you know, you 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 point out, and I think it is true that selling is very similar to negotiating, and negotiating is very similar to uh, to selling. You want, could you amplify what you written in the book about that? Yeah, if you think that literally the first, if you said, "What is selling one hundred and one?" It's what, what does a customer want to buy? Then you sell it to them. And I'll give you the easiest example because uh, we've all experienced this, whether you're leasing a car or buying a car. <clears throat> and the salesperson really isn't a good salesperson. And they ask you whatever they ask you. And I say, because in my case, what I care about is the sound system and the driver's seat. Those are the only two things I care about in a car. And then the Salesperson feels compelled to tell me the horsepower, the acceleration, the tinted windows, 52 things that I've already told them, I, it's not going to make my buying decision. Right. They will lose a sale they should have made. A really good salesperson has listened and said, oh, Mark cares about the sound system. Mark cares about the driver's seat. I'm going to explain everything about why that sound system is the best in the world and the seat is the best in the world. And then I'm going to stop talking and see if I've made the sale. And that concept of stop talking is pretty important. Maybe you've already made the sale. You don't need to talk more. Maybe you've gotten 80% of the way, but there's another 20%. And in negotiating, it's exactly the same thing. You 
you are listening to what people say they want and trying to distinguish between, you know, the way they talk. I think that's, they think that's a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. So I'm mentally calculating if there are 10 things that they would like to have, but they don't have to have them, then I should focus on the five things that they have to have and yeah. only those five. And if I can agree to those, I'm going to smooth out the rest of them. But I certainly don't want to win everything. And I don't want to tell them all the reasons why they should be doing what I want them to do. I want them to tell me what they want to do and make it easy for them to do it. And that's what good selling is all about. And by the way, I'm creating value in the process. Have you thought about setting up seminars to teach this? I, it's been suggested many times. I, I'm i reluctant. to me that, that that would be very valuable. Yeah, I, I love teaching and I'm doing a lot of teaching, whether it's law schools, business schools, engineering schools. I don't know about the, I don't know about the other. I don't know enough to know. <laughs> what are you teaching? What are your courses? Cause I, I, oh, in, it, um, in 2000, last year, 2022, I taught at UC Berkeley and it was pretty insane. Even by my standards, I commuted weekly from Cleveland. So I left Cleveland every Sunday morning, flew all day, taught. And I, there's a business I'm involved with there all day, Monday returned on Tuesday. <laughs> The course is called Street Smart Startups, okay, which I, so can't, can. I can't say it any faster than that because it's like Sue, Sue shall see. <laughs> so I've done dozens and dozens of startups and they're different than another kind of business. And so the, the subtitle was how to be and think like the CEO of a startup. And that's a very different mentality than being the CEO of a 500 employee company. You it's bet. Totally different, right? You're trying to get from zero to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100. Very different skill sets. Um, and it was, I mean, it was fascinating. My, my class had, I had people from 12 different countries of origin. They were un, I mean, just, I said to them repeatedly, I can't figure out why you guys are down there and I'm up here because I'm pretty sure you, you know, you're spotting me 40 IQ points here. But they were, they came from different backgrounds. They were law students, they were MBAs, there was somebody with a PhD in biochemistry, there were computer scientists. It was really fascinating trying to make sure that the vocabulary I was using worked for all of them. So I was always having to sort of check in to look at people's faces. You know, I said that. <laughs> Did Jackie really get that one? Do I need to go back? And sometimes I just say, hey, everybody in the audience who didn't understand the last three sentences, raise your hand. Because if you didn't understand it, I did a horrible job of communicating. You didn't do a bad job of listening. I didn't figure out the right words and the right way to explain it. And I, I, will, I will say, Bill, that there are like three classes in a row in which the students instinctively rebelled against the concept of framing. They thought framing, which to me is just completely natural, they saw that as lying, cheating, stealing, um, inauthentic. I mean, it really, really bothered them and then for the book, I had to have my picture taken. So I had a friend take it for the cover and she was doing like this. And then I went, oh, I know how to explain it to the students. This is easy. I said, if you have a painting, you need to frame it to put it on the wall. Sure. You could have a metal frame, a wooden frame, a white frame, a black frame. You could have a mat. You could frame the picture many different ways and you're trying to maximize its beauty. Do you think that's inauthentic? Because I don't. That's choosing how to frame and present something. The painting is totally real. The framing is framing. And with that, they got it like that. And all their emotional dissonance disappeared. 
What would you, what would you say? You had a lot of people in your classes that thought they might want to be entrepreneurs. What, what, what do you think? What's, what's, what's an important thing that people who think they want to start a business ought to know? So two of my maxims are startups are time, cash, and emotion vampires. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so people can't understand that when I say it the first time. I can't. Concept, but oh, I know you got it, right? It's <laughs> 724 for four years. And by the way, you don't know if you're right or not. Right. right? You're going on blind faith and you're never going to have enough cash. And you'll be emotionally exhausted. They're time, cash, and emotion vampires. If you're not prepared to make that level of commitment, you shouldn't start it. And the other, which is sort of a subset of that, is cash is a proxy for time, and time is a proxy for opportunity. Right. So every startup, I've, I've never done a set of startup projections, no matter how conservative I thought I was. I've, I've never been right, either the, because you can only sort of see what happens inside the box. You don't know when there's going to be a war between Ukraine and Russia. You know, you don't know when there's going to be a supply chain disruption. It, the best projection is you're looking through your eyes at the data that you have, and it's a very big world. So the projections are wrong. And by the way, they're always wrong because you think either expenses will be lower or revenues will come faster. Right? This is sort of Machiavelli's quote that you like. Yeah, I love that one. You're trying to change behavior. <laughs> it may be the most compelling value proposition in the world but there still be people on the other side of the discussion that they're very comfortable with the way it is, or they're gonna say it wasn't invented here. If you have cash, you can live through that. If you don't, you're dead. So cash is a proxy for time. Time is a proxy for opportunity. Well, Mark, this is uh, great fun. I've re I really enjoyed talking with you about this. Uh, Give us a last, give me a last, give us a last thought before we have to get out of here, because I, I do think people ought to go out and buy your book and, and absorb these lessons. If you think you've ever wanted to be a deal person okay. or do anything in, in, in organizing and forget business, it's also nonprofits, it's any other type of entity you'd like to create, this is a good place to start. Yeah. So Mark, I'll, with that tee up, <laughs> uh, with that softball, I'll, I'll let you, uh, Swing for the fences here. Well, that, that wasn't a gotcha question. No, that was not a gotcha. This is not 60 minutes. I, I think that the major part of it is you can be a very nice human being. You can behave very nicely. You can listen to other human beings and you will end up doing very, very well. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to, you don't have to run over people. The, the, People in a buy-sell relationship, everybody wants to call them the other side or the enemy, and that dehumanizes people. It's a terrible idea. The reason I call it the deal circle is they're your counterparty. Everybody you're interacting with is your counterparty. The fact that you're, they're your counterparty doesn't make them the enemy. It doesn't make them wrong and you good. And that's pretty basic to living, politics, government, business, being a parent. It's your counterparty. And that's a really important vocabulary difference. Oh, I so agree. And I think that wisdom's in short supply here in Washington, DC. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. Okay. So anyway, Mark Morgenstern, author of, uh, of a terrific book, The Soul of the Deal, uh, which uh, links a lot of the things he learned about uh, 
deal making with life as a jam, in a jam band, um, the Grateful Dead in this case, yep. um, highly recommended. And so y'all, thanks, thank us, thanks for joining. As always, you can find this show on all the major podcast platforms: YouTube, Rumble, Substack. Um, we're also on CPAC now on on Monday nights. And uh, as always, please send in your comments about this show and other shows you'd like to have us. Uh, uh, do we we listen to them? We care about your thoughts and want to want to create some uh, some shows that you will like. Anyway, so thanks for joining, and Mark, thank you for joining, and uh, we'll be, we'll be to be continued. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I look forward to next steps. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our interesting people page and send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.